Easter. You know, like the Jesus rising from the dead. I just, that's like straight out of a horror movie. Right. I know. Like, don't get me wrong. I love the whole idea about God becoming a, a person, like reaching out and joining us in order to bring us into relationship with God, you know, to like to become our friend or whatever. Like, I think that's so amazing. But then like you have to just like take this like left turn into like science fiction right? to make Jesus come back to life. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you've got a, a ghost that can pick up a giant boulder and and toss it. Or maybe he just walks right through it, though, at that point. That's a good question. Is he like through. a corporeal body? Can he touch things? Or is he <laughs> yeah. like just a spirit? I don't know. But at the same time, it's like I feel like I'm missing out on this whole part of my faith. Like I'm supposed to... Everybody else gets it. I feel like everybody else gets it. And everybody's so excited on Easter Sunday. And I'm like, why? I've I've never understood it. Yeah. I mean, I want to. I feel like I want to. I feel like it would be nice. I feel like I would understand something bigger if I did. But, like, I have to just, like, take this big leap. Like, I have to just be like, I'm going to decide to believe even though I don't believe, you know? I don't know. Man. Good morning, Woodland Hills. That worship set was a towel kind of worship set. Man, I don't know about you, but that, I always think the best worship services are those that double for aerobics. You know, you get your, that, that, was, that was fantastic. That was fantastic. So there's this uh, kind of liturgical saying that goes back, a lot of you know this, it uh, goes back to, I think, like the fourth century. I say Christ is risen, and you say he is risen indeed, and say it with gusto. Ready? He, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Or is he? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, every couple of years on Easter, we just like to do some what's called apologetics, just giving reasons for believing this is true. Um, because it's uh, not an easy thing to believe necessarily, as you saw it was just illustrated there. Here's the thing, when I, and I'm going to speak a little bit of code here at the first part of this message, uh, because there could be kids listening to this either in the auditorium or on podcast, and I don't want to complicate things for families. You'll see what I'm talking about here in a second. So about once a year around the time of the winter equinox, or solstice, I guess it is, um, uh, we have a holiday. We celebrate the, uh, around this, this uh, chubby guy wearing a red coat with a white beard smoking a pipe. You catch what I'm saying? And, and uh on the night, I was like six or seven years old, and the night before that celebration, my brother, my older brother, spilled the beans about what is really going on. It was a bummer. Uh, on the eve of this. And um, at first I fought back. I said, come on. You're saying all the parents around the world are lying to their kids. Yeah, right. But uh, as he pressed on, uh, I, I began to think about this, and it became clear to me that this actually was a silly story, and I felt kind of stupid for believing it. Um, you know, this, this guy's got this transportation device that can fly through the sky, pulled by an animal with a bright orifice coming out of his face, so bright he can leap through snowstorms, and, and he's got a list of every kid on the planet, naughty or nice. I, and I began to think about this, like, that is, that is kind of out there. Um, 
And, and uh, at first I was really sad because letting go of that, you want to believe that. You know, that's just part of fun. And it's uh, and so sad to have to admit that. But then I got kind of angry. I felt like I, I've been duped. Um, yeah, I, I, I got mad about it. And the only little takeaway on that for parents would be this. Uh, if that's part of your celebration that, on that annual time around winter solstice where you celebrate the chubby guy, um, I, would, I would start to demythologize that rather early. You know, it, and, and start to warm children up to you know, a, a, a retranslation of that. So it doesn't hit like, like that, bam. It was all just a joke. Anyways, because that can be kind of traumatic. You know, it was kind of traumatic for me. And I don't know if I was this way before this event, or maybe this event made me this way, but ever since, I have had this fear of being duped. I, I can't stand the thought that I'm believing something that is a lie because someone told me. And I've had kind of this paranoia about this. I, I, so yeah, I have to question everything. Because I know that just because a parent tells me something, that doesn't mean it's true. Or just because a lot of people believe it doesn't mean it's true. Uh, or just because you read a book doesn't mean it's true. People can be duped. We believe a lot of false things. So I've always had this kind of tenacity about this. This is why I sometimes, when my brain latches onto a problem, I sometimes end up writing a very long book. <laughs> I, I, it's like, I got to get to the bottom of this. I, I, I don't want to, and just because everyone sees it a certain way, doesn't mean it's, it is that way. I have a paranoia about it. Sometimes it gets me in trouble. It gets in the way of things. Um, I was at a conference uh, a couple of years ago, and this conference, part of it involved this, this uh, church, this really Pentecostal, charismatic kind of church service. Those of you who have come from Pentecostal, charismatic backgrounds kind of know what I'm talking about. A lot of things were going on. Of course, we were getting kind of close to that this morning, I think. Uh, but man, man, people were falling down, running the aisles, jumping up and around, all sorts of in- interesting things were happening. Some of it was of God, some of it I think was just kind of fun, but uh, it, it was kind of mayhem. And then they had people giving testimonies. Um, and his testimonies, some of them at least, were like over-the-top supernatural. It's like almost like each had a, it was like one upmanship on how much on the wall factor. Like whoa, whoa, whoa! And it just it got. And this one lady got up. She was like one of the keynote speakers actually, and, and she gave this testimony about how uh, recently she'd been traveling someplace and her luggage got lost. So she's talking to the luggage people. At one point, she says she just. Closed her eyes and said, help me, Jesus. And the luggage materialized right in front of them all. <laughs> and the crowd was going, <laughs> but I could not join in on that. And it's, I believe in God and I believe in miracles. I've even seen a couple, so it's, it's not that. It's just, I don't want to be duped. That may have happened. It may have happened. I don't, but I just don't know if it happened. And I'm not going to call her a liar, but um, I don't know this lady. You know, she, is she rational? Maybe she didn't take her medication. Uh, maybe, you know, they, they just let her out yesterday. I don't know anything about her. I, I can imagine, you know, maybe she prayed and then someone brought over her luggage and then she looked and there the luggage was. And then as she's thinking about it and she's thankful for Jesus, her brain just kind of sincerely morphs the miracle until she actually saw it materialize in front of them. Then they then exaggerates more and they saw the thing materialize. I don't know how it worked, but I can see that happening. It seems more plausible than it actually did materialize. So I don't, I don't, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I don't know that it did happen and I'm not going to believe it until I got some reasons to believe it and I don't have any reasons. And so it's just a skeptical kind of thing. Uh, And this applies to the resurrection as well. Um, I, I, I would need some reason. That's a tall, you're asking me to believe a, a, a tall order. Because usually when people die, they stay dead. Um, and, and so to believe that this person rose from the dead, 
which he, that's what confirms all the claims he made and things like that. To believe that, I would need some reasons. Now, at first, when I first came to Christ, uh, my experience with God, was, with God was pretty much enough. I had this incredible experience, and I wrote on that for a long while. But there came a time where that wasn't enough. Because I'm aware that people can have powerful experiences that confirm beliefs that I don't think are true. Experiences can be really subjective. Uh, and so I began to question that. And there was a period of time where I actually lost my faith because I couldn't find enough reasons to believe that it was true. Obviously, I've changed my mind on that. Um, and, and so what I want to share this morning are, are just like, what are the reasons that I have? I, I need some solid reasons, not just feeling stuff. As good as that is, wonderful. But are there objective reasons that can be given as to why a thinking, intelligent person would believe that this thing is true? That's what I want to share here. And, and I'll be just scratching the surface of this. Uh, if you want to go deeper into this, it's an important issue. We've got several books out there uh, that, that explore various aspects of this. I'm just going to be giving you one angle on this. Uh, it, it has to do with the birth of the early church, things that need to be explained that I can't explain unless I accept that this guy actually rose from the dead. All right? Here are four indisputable historical facts. Everyone agrees on this, whether you're atheist or believer, these are the things that we know for sure. Number one, we know that in the middle of the uh, first century, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, there was this movement that got birthed, and it was uh, of a bunch of Jews who were claiming, proclaiming, and worshiping Jesus as the creator, as God, and as Savior. A bunch of Jewish believers now are worshiping Jesus as a contemporary Jew, a fellow comrade of theirs, and they're worshiping this guy as the creator, and as God, and as Savior. What's really interesting about that is that these were all monotheistic Jews, first century Palestinian monotheistic Jews, who every morning of their life would recite the Shema Israel. That's the, uh, it comes out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And they believe in one God, created all things, and God is God, and humans are humans, and the two are never the same. They stress the transcendence of God. To believe that a human being was God, let alone a contemporary human being, one that they knew, to believe that he was God, that person right over there, that, that's God, would go against everything these people as Jewish believers would believe. And the question is, what explains that? We need to explain that. Uh, here's the second thing. That wasn't the only thing that was transformed with these disciples. Everything about their, their traditional Jew, Jewish belief was changed. Their, their Judaism was utterly transformed. Uh, they, for example, they stopped believing that, that they're under the law. At the core of the Jewish faith was the idea that the way to get rightly related to God is to comply with the law. Uh, these folks are now saying, no, the law can't do that. Uh, we just, if you believe in Jesus, you're, you're right with God. That was, that's a radical change. They stopped offering sacrifices in the temple. No, no longer any need for sacrifices. They start practicing new rituals like baptism and, and communion. Uh, er, everything about these, these, the, the faith of these people has been transformed. Uh, in time, they start to worship on Sunday rather than Saturday. They changed the Sabbath because Jesus rose on Sunday. What explains this change? That's the question. It's a straightforward historical question. They say that where there's smoke, there's fire, and that's how you do history. We always see the smoke. It's the, it's the impact that events have because we can't see the events themselves. So here's the smoke. What fire explains this? Here's a third indisputable fact, and that is that the Christians were severely persecuted for their faith. Initially by just being ostracized by all their fellow peers, uh, but then it got much more severe. Under Nero in the 60s, 
uh, he, he blamed the, the Christians for this burning of part of Rome and, and scapegoated them, um, which shows you that this movement had grown very quickly to be sizable enough in the Roman Empire by 62 AD that, that, that Nero could want to squash it. And the, the, the persecution was so severe that Tacitus, he's this Roman historian, and he's seen thousands of crucifixions. He's hardened to it. He knows how ruthless the Caesars can be. But even he expresses pity towards the, the way the Christians were, were martyred. Uh, among other things, they, this is where they get that phrase Roman candlesticks from. Because one of the things that Nero did, he was a sick, demented person. And he, he would impale Christians on poles and then tar them and then light them on fire. Uh, and do it while he's celebrating a dinner. And that's how he, that was his candlelight burning bodies. That was his sense of humor. So these Christians are persecuted in severe ways. And what's interesting about that, I'll say more about this later on, but we don't have any record of, of anyone recanting their faith uh, in, in, in the face of that persecution. Um, and there's plenty of opponents. I mean, the, Jew, the Orthodox Jews hated Christ, Christianity. Uh, they saw it as a cult, and they wanted to squash it. Uh, and, and if anyone had recanted, they, they, we would know about it. They prayed them around uh, as proof that this is a false religion. But they're severely persecuted. And finally, despite that persecution, we know that this, uh, their message, this movement spread, and it, it originated in the very region where they claimed all this stuff happened, where Jesus lived and ministered, and it spread very quickly then out from all throughout Palestine and then throughout the Roman Empire. To the point where, as I said, in 62, it was sizable enough that Nero could blame uh, this fire on Christians. And, and it was unpopular enough that people wanted to, to, uh, to, to, to squash it. Um, it was not a story about what, uh, something that happened long, long ago and far, far away. This was a story, and this is, you'll see why this is significant, a story about a guy who lived right here uh, when, when Pilate was governor and Herod was king and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea was on the Sanhedrin. That's a, like the Supreme Court. They give times, they give places. Uh, he's a contemporary of theirs. They even appeal to the audience when they're preaching. You guys know how Jesus went about. You heard him teach. You saw the miracles that he did. This is Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And he says, and you all crucified him because uh, he didn't fit your mold of what a Messiah was supposed to be. Well, he's risen again. Uh, and he's not mad about that. He just wants to save you. Uh, so they, they appeal to the, the audience that, that, uh, that they say has been eyewitnesses of this stuff. Okay, the question is, what can explain this? These four facts. Now see, if the disciples are telling the truth, I think we have a good explanation. Uh, this is how they explain it. They say that the reason they are worshiping Jesus as Lord and the reason why their Judaism is completely transformed and why they're willing to, to undergo persecution is because Jesus, in fact, made these divine claims. He lived this extraordinary life. Uh, they even say it was a sinless life. He did these miracles, and he, most importantly, rose from the dead after he was crucified. If those things are true, then you can understand why the disciples believe that this guy is God incarnate, uh, that, he, that he is divine, and that he did the miracles, and that he rose from the dead. If they're telling the truth, everything that needs to be explained can be explained. In fact, I would think it would take something that dramatic to transform the disciples the way they were transformed. Something cataclysmic happened to revolutionize their thinking, to revolutionize their religious faith, to start worshiping a contemporary as God. If they're telling the truth, that explains it. If they're not telling the truth, what explains it? Because it's got to be explained. Now, if, if, if your options are either they're telling the truth or they're not telling the truth. That kind of exhausts the field, right? Um, and so, if they're telling the truth, it's all, it can be explained. If they're not telling the truth, you've got two options. 
One, they're not telling the truth intentionally. They're lying. We could call this the hoax hypothesis. Or two, they're sincere, they believe it, but they're not telling the truth. In which case, they're, they're, they're passing on a legend. So we could call this the legend hypothesis. Hoax hypothesis, legend hypothesis. If you're not going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're not going to believe this is true, these are your options. So let's examine both of these. The hoax hypothesis. Is it conceivable, is it plausible that a bunch of people got together and said, hey, let's make up a story. Let's concoct a story. Get concrete about this. Imagine Peter gathering 11 other guys around and says, hey, you guys, want to, want to be 12 apostles? Here's what we're going to do. Um, let's, let's tell a story about a guy named Jesus. And he went around and let's say he did miracles and he, and he, and he, you know, and he healed a lot of people and cast out demons. And, and, and then he got crucified, right? He got crucified. And then he rose from the dead. But he's the Messiah, all right? In fact, we're going to say he's God. Uh, this will prove he's God. All right? Let's go out there and preach that. And we can be his, his 12 apostles. And John would say, dude, um, if we preach that, uh, that is going to, that, that there, people are going to hate that. That's not what a, a Messiah is supposed to be. Uh, we're going to be seen as heretics. We could get killed for this. Uh, is it plausible that, and then Peter goes, yeah, yeah, let's go and preach this thing. Let's go and preach this thing. That's, that, that's the hoax hypothesis, all right? Uh, there's several problems with this. Number one, motive. Why would they do that? You know, if, if they got rich off of this thing, if this was a get-rich-quick scheme thing, you know, uh, if they were like televangelists, you know, plant a seed faith offering today, and, and then you have your, your mansion and your Rolls Royce and your Rolex watch, you know, if, if, they, if it was that kind of a thing, they'd have a motive. You could say, well, it's possible that they were making it up. wouldn't prove that they were making it up, but, you know, it is suspicious because they had a lot to gain. Trouble is, they had nothing to gain and everything to lose. They would know in preaching this gospel that this is so counter what everyone else is thinking, that there's going to be persecution on them. They're going to suffer for this. So why would you do that for a lie? Go ahead and preach. That's something you know to be untrue. Number two, um, there's, there's, even if they had a motive, which they didn't, they wouldn't have the means of pulling this off. Because as I said, this wasn't a story about what something happened long, long ago and far, far away, something nobody can check out. This is a story about Right here and right now, this guy that you all saw. They named Herod and Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea. You can't make up a story. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court in first century Judaism. You don't go around dropping names like this if you're making up a, a, a tall tale, because it'd be the easiest thing in the world to refute. Imagine if, if somebody here started like preaching this gospel about a guy who was doing all these miracles throughout St. Paul and, 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 you know, raising the dead and casting out demons and that, that he was, he was then killed, but then came back to life. Uh, and well, as a person who does not like to be duped and doesn't like other people to be duped and who would think this is a false religion, I would go out of my way big time to expose that as being wrong. And it'd be the easiest thing to do. Go around and ask people all around. Did you ever see this guy doing his miracles and raising the dead? And, and, and you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, if no one saw it, they'd be going, like, what are you talking about? Especially if he would start naming, like, the, the governor. Yeah, yeah, he, he was up before, uh, you know, Mark Dayton. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and he went up before the council and, and, and Amy Klobuchar. Because that's how big these names that they're talking about are. I could go interview them. Did you ever meet this guy who supposedly did these miracles? It'd be so easy to refute. And Christianity is birthed in a hostile environment where there's a lot of people who will be interested in refuting it. In fact, what's interesting is that... Um, We've got records of what the critics were saying about the Christian faith early on. And of all the things they criticized about the Christians, no one ever said they made it up. No one ever denied that Jesus existed. In fact, no one ever denied that Jesus did the miracles. 
They grant that he did miracles, that existed and did miracles. What they argue, though, is that he did miracles because he, as a charlatan or by the power of the devil. But they don't dispute that miracles happen. And that's a pretty good piece of evidence that this thing was not a hoax. His, uh, the opponents would have easily put, uh, pointed that out. Number three, when you're giving a historical theory, it really helps to have a little bit of evidence. But there's no evidence. There's no evidence that, this, uh, that they made this story up. There's no evidence that they had the kind of character that could do such a thing. As I've already said, they certainly didn't have a motive, anything to gain by making this up. But there's no evidence of other sorts. Like when people make things up, we've got quite a few examples of this in history. The story usually changes. It morphs. You can kind of like see a development of it, okay? Uh, there's no evidence of that. Uh, if, when people make things up, as soon as persecution breaks out, somebody recants. You know, there's supposedly three witnesses uh, that saw Joseph Smith get these golden tablets you know, that, start, that was the origin of the Book of Mormon. Well, when persecution broke out against the Mormons, two of them recanted. We, do, we didn't actually see anything. Okay, that's what you expect. I'm surprised that the third one stuck to the story. But, uh, but we have no evidence of, of, of anyone recanting. And as I said before, we, if, we, if someone would have recanted, if one of the founders would have recanted, they would have been prayed around uh, for others to see uh, as a way of squelching this thing. And so the kind of evidence you'd expect to have if this was made up, we just don't have. There's no evidence for it. But on the other hand, number four, we have a lot of evidence against it. Uh, a ton of evidence against this. Uh, and here I can just scratch the surface. But I'll just say this. When, when historians study ancient documents, there's a certain series of tests that we put them through. Questions we ask of ancient documents to discern, are these documents reliable or not? Certain questions that you ask of ancient documents, all of them. When you put the Gospels to that same test, treat them not like the Word of God, but just as ancient documents, first century documents, we don't know if they're reliable or not, put them to this test, they pass these tests with flying colors. They give you every reason an ancient document could give you to show that they're actually telling the truth, that they're anchored in history. Now, a lot of scholars don't agree with that. They think they're legendary, and the reason is because they include miracles. And for a lot of scholars, including New Testament scholars, they don't think miracles are possible. They have a naturalistic Western worldview. And so any document that contains miracles is automatically filed in the category of legend. Even if it gives you all the other reasons in the world that an ancient document could give you for believing that it's reliable. If you're willing to believe in the possibility of miracles, they, these documents give you every reason to, to think that they are in fact true. In other words, if you're willing to, if you are open to the possibility that this story is true, it gives you all the reasons in the world to, to believe it's true. Only if you rule it out at the start will it not give you reasons to believe it's true because you already ruled that out. So, for example, I'll give you just like one example of this, this test. The Gospels are full, all four Gospels are full of detail, incidental detail, uh, that doesn't contribute to the storyline. It's the kind of thing that eyewitnesses give. When eyewitnesses are just rec recalling something, they'll include a lot of incidental things that aren't really important, but it's just how they remember it. Whereas in fabricated documents, you have much less of that. Um, and what's especially important is, is some of the detail, it not only doesn't contribute to the story, but it seems to count against the story. It's the kind of thing that if a person was making something up, you would leave this part out. So I'll give you one example of this. Uh, and it's all the better of an example because it, it's a resurrection narrative. This is John chapter 20. Here's what we read. Early on in the first day of the week, Sunday, while it was still dark, okay, just, just before sunrise, Mary Magdalene, stop there. Mary is a woman. And women in first century Judaism have no credibility. 
It was an incredibly sexist culture. Women weren't allowed ordinarily to testify in court unless there was a man who could corroborate their testimony. Uh, uh, so if you're, if you're fabricating a document, uh, a story here, the last thing you want to put in is that a woman was the first one to find the tomb empty. And where are the guys? They're scared. They're back in the room hiding. They're scared. The women! <laughs> Who's wearing the pants in this story? The women are the ones who go to the, to, 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 to the tomb to honor Jesus. So the guys are the one writing this story. Do you think that they would make up the fact that they were cowards while this woman was, had, was brave enough to go uh, to, to this tomb? On top of that, Mary Magdalene, a lot of scholars argue that, uh, that she was a former prostitute. So if you're, you're not going to make a, a, a story about a woman dis- discovering the tomb first to start with, but if you are going to put that in there, you wouldn't say that she's a prostitute. You wouldn't have a prostitute lady being the first one to discover the tomb empty. So Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Stop there. Uh, the one Jesus loved. Okay, this is John's subtle, not so subtle, actually, way of referring to himself. He, 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 the one Jesus loved. It's, uh, he, this guy had, uh, yeah, like he, he didn't love the other apostles as much. <laughs> Last week, Bruxy talked about the human nature, the humanness of, of, of the Bible. Here we're seeing humanness in the Bible. And I love it because it helps authenticate the story. Uh, yeah, John's got an ego problem here. Okay, so the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken, this is what Mary Magdalene says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Uh, notice here that she uses the first person plural. We don't know where they have put him. Although John has only mentioned Mary Magdalene, and the reason that's significant is the other gospel accounts include other women at the tomb. And you might get the impression that there's a contradiction here because he only mentions Mary, but... The phrase, the fact that she uses the first person plural, means that John's very aware that there were other women uh, at the tomb as well. So Peter and the other disciples whom Jesus loved started for the tomb. They're off and running. Both were running, but the other disciple whom Jesus loved outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Who cares? He bent, down, he bent over. Now that's interesting because we know that for this period of time, the first century, uh, the tombs of wealthy people were lowered to the ground and you had to bend over to look in them or, or, to, or to go in them. Uh, and, and so there's a, a point that's corroborated by archaeology. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. I think because he was scared. <laughs> but then Simon Peter, probably being this big burly guy huffing and puffing, <laughs> He comes up behind him, and he went straight into the tomb, which is just like Peter. You know, he acts first, thinks later. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, why does that add to the story at all? He's telling us, it's kind of weird. Okay, so the the body wrap was was laying in one place, but the thing that went around his head was, was over in a different place. It's a, a kind of a strange phenomenon report. It doesn't add anything to the storyline. In fact, it kind of raises a question. What was Jesus wearing when he was walking around in his resurrected body? Because he left all the clothes in the tomb. Couldn't be I'm the only one who thinks that. But, uh... but see, a made-up story doesn't leave unanswered questions like that. And I, I don't want any questions about the anatomy of resurrected bodies after this service, okay? I don't know anything about the anatomy of resurrected bodies. All right. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. He can't get over this. He just has to keep on reminding you. He also went inside and he saw and believed like Peter didn't see and believe. He saw and he believed. Yay, you. 
They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, which makes me wonder, well, then what were you believing? Uh, and notice here that Jesus had been talking about rising from the dead, he need, the need to suffer and rise from the dead throughout his whole ministry. And even now, they still don't get it. The disciples are rather spiritually dull, and that's what you find throughout the Gospels, and they're the ones writing the Gospels. You think they're going to make up a story about how stupid they are and how cowardly they are? Uh, it, it, no! They make themselves heroes. When you make up stories, you know, you want to benefit from it. John tries to benefit from it a little bit, but he doesn't really succeed very well, if you ask me, in my humble opinion. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So you have all this incidental detail, and a lot of it is counterproductive, the kind of thing you'd leave out if you're fabricating a story. And that's what you find throughout the Gospels. There's all sorts of examples like this. For example, if you want to sell a story about this Jesus being the revelation of God, God himself on earth, if you want to make up a story like that, A, you don't want him to be crucified because no one thinks the Messiah is supposed to get crucified. And B, if he's going to get crucified, don't put in his mouth, Having I mean, cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's a real profound point, I think, but you've got to chew on it a lot. And we talked about it Friday night. Uh, it's, I think, beautiful, and, but it's puzzling. And it would leave this question, wait a minute, you're saying he is God, and now he's calling out to God, and God has forsaken him. What's up with that? If you're trying to sell a story, now, why do they want to sell a story? We don't know, and we don't know how they'd have the means to sell a story, or why they want to do that. But if you're going to, you don't put something like that into the mouth of Jesus. It just doesn't help you make your case. So, folks, I think the hoax hypothesis is, is, is uh, it's got nothing going for it, and it's got everything going against it. It's, it's not, I think it's a lot easier to believe that he actually rose from the dead than it is to believe that they made the story up. So that leaves us with this one other alternative. Could it be a legend? Maybe Jesus was this wise teacher, and he, you know, maybe did some miracles, like, you know, faith healer of sorts or maybe casting demons out. There were other faith healers around at the time. So maybe he was like one of those guys, the carpenter on the side. But he made a big impact, and so stories about him started to grow and grow and grow. And, 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 the, you know, and in time, he evolved to being God, creator, and savior. Could that have happened? And stories about his resurrection. Like maybe someone had a dream that was really vivid and, and it, it convinced them that Jesus was still, somehow still alive. And that story started to spread and before long it became an empty tomb and all that. Is, is that plausible? Because that's, that's your best option. If you're not going to believe it's true, you've got to believe it's a legend. But there are some serious, serious problems with the legend hypothesis. Uh, here's a couple of them. Number one, you don't have enough time. Legends usually take time. You've got to develop them. You know, the story's got to grow. Uh, you, you just don't have enough time for that to happen here. When I first went to the U of M, I, became, I was a Christian my senior in high school, but I started the U, and it took about eight weeks for my faith to get destroyed. Uh, I just had so many questions. I wanted to believe, but my mind wouldn't let me. One of the things I contributed to it, I was in this class on the New Testament as literature at the U of M, and the professor, really early on in this class, was talking about Jesus as a myth. The idea that he's God is, is, is a result of legendary development. A student, who I'm sure was a Christian, said, how are, how are we to believe that these Jews, monotheistic Jews, came to believe that in, in a, a fellow contemporary of theirs being God? And this professor responded. Now, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then this professor responded by going, well, that's really not surprising at all. Uh, you know, Buddha was an atheist. He didn't believe in God at all. And yet his followers began to worship him as God. So if it could happen to an atheist, it certainly could happen to a monotheistic Jew. I remember sitting in the class and it's like, oh, I guess I picked the wrong year to believe in Jesus. I, I was just, you know, I, I didn't have an answer for that. I didn't have an answer for that. Well, what I didn't know then, but I do know now is this. 
Yes, uh, Buddha evolved into being a god in one segment of Buddhism called Mahayana Buddhism. Some followers started to worship him, but he wasn't viewed as the god. They didn't have a concept of the god. He was just one god, all right? It's very different. Number two, um, it took five centuries for this, 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 this uh, strand of Buddhism to start worshiping uh, uh, Buddha. It, it took five centuries for that legend to grow, for him to be this, this divine being. Five centuries in a culture that was conducive to legend making. Among the Jews, uh, you don't have five centuries. You don't have even 50 years. Uh, Paul, the, the first record we have of the resurrection is given by Paul. Here's what he says in verses 1 and 3. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospels I preached to you, that you received and on which you've taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as being of first importance. Okay, now, it's undisputed that, that 1 Corinthians was written between 54 and 55 AD. We can date that very precisely. So you're, you're, you're roughly, uh, what, um, you know, 25 years after the event. Um, and, and, he's, and that is my historical standards very close. Rarely do we have uh, things recorded about events that are only 25 years removed. Uh, for example, most of what we think we know about Alexander the Great is written by one historian, a guy named Arian, and he is writing four centuries after Alexander the Great lived. That's pretty typical by historical standards. Here we've got a writing 25 years after the alleged event. But what's really important is that you don't even have 25 years. Because Paul, he says, he's, he's here passing on what he received from the apostles. And the language he's using here was common in rabbinic Judaism for passing on sacred tradition. And we know Paul got this shortly after his conversion. He went to the apostles. We read about this in Galatians 1. Uh, and so this dates back 20-some 20, 20 years, which puts you right on top of the event. How, in a Jewish environment, can you go from being a carpenter who maybe healed a couple people to being God in a span of, what, one or two or three years? It's just not going to happen. Not only do we not have enough time, but you have the wrong culture. Uh, the Jews were resistant to legend-making because that's what the pagans did. They did believe in some legends, but they were much more resistant to that than, than the pagans were, precisely because they didn't want to be like the pagans. And they were really, really resistant to any myth that had to do with a person being divine in any sense of the word because that's what all the pagans were doing. Uh, if they're going to resist any legend, it'd be a legend about a guy being God. But not only that, but this, this legend about Jesus, it violates everything about their Judaism. Here's the thing. Let we know why legends are usually created. Legends evolve naturally over time because uh, the self-identity of a group is being threatened. Traditional values are, are, are crumbling. Something is, 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 is off. And so legends are there to reinforce the cohesiveness of a social group. The Gospels don't reinforce anything. In fact, they undermine everything. A guy being God, that's not a traditional Jewish value. The end of sacrifices, they're not under the law anymore. They're not going to the temple anymore. They're not worshiping on Saturday anymore. All the things that held Judaism in place are, are, are being undermined by this supposed legend. Uh, that's just not the kind of environment where legends are born, let alone born so quickly that within a couple of years they're worshiping a guy as being divine. Something happens in history. Something actual had to have happened that changed the perception of these, 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 these Jews. It wouldn't have happened just by word of mouth and the growing story and legends and things of that sort. Number three, you've got numerous eyewitnesses that say that this isn't legendary. This actually happened. Um, so the, the earliest list of this is found in 1 Corinthians. Again, uh, here's what Paul says. Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, 
And what's interesting about that is we don't have any record of Jesus personally appearing to Peter before everyone else, though Luke confirms that he did. Luke first appeared to Peter. Uh, and yeah, I want to know why. That's a different sermon, but, but it's an interesting little detail. And then to the, he appeared to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 500. Uh, and, and when Paul says most of these are, are still living, what he's saying is you could go check these out. Go, go ask them. Go talk to them. They probably would have been well-known in the early church, people who had actually seen the, the risen Lord. Paul says you can go ask them. Then he appeared to James. I love this. Because the Gospels record that James wasn't a, a follower of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. Uh, in fact, James and his mother and other brothers went out to try to get Jesus to come home because they thought he was going to get himself killed because of all the things he was saying. They thought he'd gone loony. The Gospel of John tells us that. They thought he was out of his mind. He was going to get himself killed, which he did. Well, see, there again, that's not the kind of thing you'd make up and put into a Gospel if you're fabricating something. His brother didn't believe him. It raises questions. How could his brother not believe him? Now, if you ask me, it makes total sense that his brother wouldn't believe him. Uh, in fact, I would think James maybe hated Jesus. Think what it would be like to grow up with the Son of God. I just, that, can't, that couldn't have been pleasant. Who stole the cookie? Well, you know, it wasn't Jesus. You know. <laughs> Jesus, he, he never does anything wrong. Well, no, he doesn't. He's the Son of God. <laughs> uh, the competition's pretty stiff when you're, when you're the brother of the Son of God. Uh, you know... I, I grew up with a, with a brother who was legendary in football. He's just a fantastic running back. Uh, and I hated it. I hated it because I was mediocre. I finally quit the sport and took up cross-country running because I didn't want to be in his shadows. But I would be the first one to squash any story that was exaggerating something Chris did. Uh, the, one time, he scored on a, some important football game, four touchdowns, and he was on the front page of the sports section. And the, the title was, Can Anyone Stop Chris Boyd? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'll stop him. I know. I was a petty little squeak. So I went to school and, and walk in. This is the day after, the, the, the day that the thing came out in the newspaper. And there's these cheerleader-type girls, cute girls, all sitting around talking about Chris. I walk in, I could hear him. And, and one said, did you hear he scored five touchdowns? So I popped my head in that group. I, could, I said, it was only four. <laughs> He's not that good. I, I, was, I was petty. I, was just, I apologize, Chris. But look at I didn't get my life from Christ back then. So James, it's not surprising he didn't follow Jesus. What's really interesting, though, and what needs an explanation is he did start following Jesus after Jesus died. Why would that have happened? If Jesus rose from the dead, that might convince James that his brother's actually God incarnate. If he did rise from the dead, what would convince a brother that he did? If this is legendary, James would not have come on board with this. You know, he'd have to be in it all along. And for, it to come, for, for, for this to develop in the span of a couple of years and for the brother to buy, sorry, that is as implausible as anything I can imagine. I, I, I'd easier, have an easier time believing that Jesus came down on a spaceship or something than believe that. Uh, that's just as implausible as it gets. So there's all these eyewitnesses, and then after James, he appeared to the apostles, and last of all to Paul as one born out of season. Okay, so you have numerous eyewitnesses. This wasn't some dream, someone hallucinated. They weren't smoking pot or dropping acid. They, they, they claimed to have witnessed him over a period of 40 days. This isn't the stuff of legend making. Right? And so that's told long, long ago, far, far away. These, this story's being told while the James and the mother and all these other folks are still around to say, yep, we saw it. Number four, you have five independent early accounts. They're early 
by historical standards, Paul's writing about 25 years after the event. I would argue that all of the Gospels should be dated before 70 AD. Uh, but even if you don't accept that, if you go with liberal scholars, they're written in the 80s and 90s, which by historical standards are still very close to the event. Especially when you consider that in, in Jewish culture, we know this from a number of different sources, that w w when they passed on oral tradition, it was very reliable. And all the stuff in the Gospels was passed on orally before it was ever written down. And it, it was very reliable. They took that stuff very, very seriously. Um, and so the, the sources are very early, and you've got five of them. Um, and they're relatively independent. And you can tell that they're independent because they don't all agree. If they were copying one source or copying each other, they would agree on the details, but they don't. They all, all of them disagree significantly on, on the details. Um, you know, when exactly did they go to the tomb? Who was the first one to see the tomb? Who, who was the first one to appear to Jesus? All that stuff. And that's totally normal. Whenever you have multiple accounts of the same event, you will have apparent discrepancies. That's, that's just par for the course. Nothing surprising about that. We've got JFK's assassination on video, and we still can't agree on the details. How many shots were fired? What shot was first? The compound, the grassy knoll, or all those kind of questions. And th that's on video. But see, everyone agrees, even though they have disagreements on the details, everyone agrees that JFK was assassinated. And even though the gospel accounts disagree on the details, they all agree that the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared to them. And when you've got that in common, the little details don't make much of a difference, do they? In fact, they just confirm that, that these are five independent sources. So if this is a legend, you have to say that this legend, legend evolved five times independent of each other. That's rather implausible. And it evolved very quickly in a culture that was not conducive to it, in a way that undermined the very fabric of the Judaism of the people who are passing it on. That, folks, I submit to you, is wildly implausible. And the final point I want to make is simply this. All the Gospels, as I said earlier, give evidence of being reliable. They, they pass the historical test. And even the, the, the resurrection accounts, considered independent of the rest of the Gospel, they pass historical tests uh, with flying colors. From where I'm sitting, uh, as I look at this, I have got more reasons, far more reasons, more compelling reasons to think the gospel uh, authors were telling the truth than that they were fabricating it, either intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, and therefore, I am willing to put all my eggs in this basket and base my life on this claim. They were telling the truth. And if they were telling the truth, folks, that means Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really did rise from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, folks, that changes everything. That changes everything. Uh, the universe you live in changes the minute you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Because see, if he rose from the dead, that means he is actually who he said he was. Uh, he, he is, in fact, the Lord. He's the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. He's the creator. He's the savior. He's the comforter. He's the, he's the provider. Amen. He is who he says he is. He's the great I am. And what it means is that his death, his death reveals the very heart of God. Uh, and, and his death reveals what God thinks about us, that, that we were worth him dying for. Uh, and, and if he rose from the dead, that means that the, his, death, his, his death eliminates everything that could possibly separate us from God. If Jesus rose from the dead, it means that our sins are forgiven. He's not holding our sins against us, as Paul points out. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means that every obstacle that could separate us from God has been removed. Hallelujah. As far as the east is from the west, our sins have been cast from us. If Jesus is risen from the dead... That means that, that, that his kingdom will have no end. It means he has defeated death and sin and sickness and the grave. Hallelujah. If Jesus rises from the dead, that means that his kingdom has been established. And it's just a matter of time before we see 
all war and all hatred eradicated from this universe. It's just a matter of time before there's no more death and no more sorrow to wipe away every tear from our eye. If Jesus has risen from the dead, and he has risen from the dead, praise God, that means that it's just a matter of time before there's no more sickness, no more greed, no more anger, no more racism, no more bondage, no more captivity, none of the things that hold us down, no, no, no more dehumanization. If Jesus has risen from the dead, that means we are set free, praise God. It means that this story, this the story that we're in, is not some absurd, meaningless joke. This story that we're in is actually the greatest love story ever told. And if Jesus is risen from the dead, it means you are invited in on this love story because he died for you. Which means if Jesus is risen from the dead, and I have every reason to think that he is risen from the dead, if he's risen from the dead, the most important question you have to ask yourself is, do you know him? Because he is the Lord, the King of Kings. Um, are you related to him? Are you in on this love story? Are you surrendered to him? Are you surrendered to him? Because see, this love story involves him giving his all for you with the hope that you will then reciprocate and give your all for him. Uh, it's, a, it's an all or nothing thing. If Jesus is risen from the dead, he is deserving of our all, the highest priority in our life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so if this is finally starting to make sense to you, maybe it has never made sense before, or you're just never given reasons to think it's true, but your mind is saying yes to this and your heart is saying yes to this. I want you, and when we're dismissed, come up here and up front there'll be some people uh, who will just, would love to get you started on what it is, uh, learning what it is to cultivate a relationship with Christ, what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, come join this movement that, that he has birthed uh, and that will last forever. Amen? Surrender your life to Jesus. Or if you're here and have any other need that could use prayer, I invite you to come forward and, and share that with the prayer team as well. Would you stand? We will end the way we began this message. I want you to say it with passion. Say it with gusto. Say it like you mean it because it is in fact true. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you guys. Go out and live the resurrected life.